You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's Max. Show is coming right up. But before that, I want to tell you a little bit about our sponsor this week. It's Linda. Uh, we are already in February, which means you, like me, uh, perhaps have already failed at a New Year's resolution. Uh, I know that I am eating like shit and not working out at all, which was not the plan. Uh, but if you want to truly invest in yourself in a sustainable way, if you want to improve yourself, you should try lynda.com. Uh, Linda is used by millions of people around the world. They've got over 3,000 courses on topics like web development, photography, visual design, and business. You can learn software, uh, Excel, WordPress, Photoshop, GarageBand. You can learn how to podcast. All their courses are taught by experts, and new courses are added to the site every week. Uh, whether you want to set new financial goals, find work-life balance, invest in a new hobby, ask your boss for a raise, find a new job, or improve upon your current job skills in 2015, lynda.com has something for everyone. Uh, so here's what you should do. Go to lynda.com slash longform. You're going to get a free 10-day trial. Get unlimited access to every course on lynda.com. Go ahead. lynda.com slash longform. I challenge you to learn something new in 2015. Hello. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Lindsay. I'm here with just one host, Aaron Lammer. How are you, sir? Where is Evan? I don't even know where he is. Uh, I think Evan's fled. Yeah? The country? Yeah, he's just gone. He took a bunch of deposits for uh, weddings. Yeah. <laughs> took the fuck off. Max is Max is making light of the fact that um, there's a bar in the building, which our office is in, uh, called Rebar. I have no problem uh, publicizing this. I believe it's been covered in the news. It's been covered in the news uh, that uh, it, it was a terrible bar. They served me a lot of- <laughs> That hasn't fl- been covered in the news. Flat Diet Cokes <laughs> was their business game. But um, the guy was in all kinds of debt. And he took a bunch of deposits. It's a very large bar for like wedding receptions and then fled the country. He took a summer's worth of wedding deposits. And it just happened that the deposits were really high, but the overall bills were really low. Yeah. And he booked the entire summer and then uh, put a sign on the front door, did not tell a single employee, rebar is closed, and fled the country. And then he was caught in Bali. Yeah. Yeah. Well, come on the show, guy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's where Evan is. Uh, who's on the show this week? Uh, I talked to Jack Schaefer. Jack Schaefer is the uh, uh, senior media critic for Politico. Uh, he was the longtime press critic at Slate, formerly the editor of the Washington City paper. Uh, he is like a, uh, you know, I don't know what the term is. He's like a grandmaster of journalism. Yeah. 
uh, and I went and I talked to him. I had to be in D.C. last week, so I went uh, to Politico, and Jack and I had worked out this time for me to come there and talk to him, and then uh, he had just gotten an assignment like half an hour before I got there to write another column about Brian Williams, and uh, the man was frazzled. He was, yeah. on, he was on deadline. And uh, it was the first time, I think, this is the first episode that we were, like, actively inconveniencing someone. <laughs> I, I doubt that's actually true. Maybe. Just, most people are not, like, yeah. not uh, shooting quite as straight as uh, Jack yeah. Schaefer. Okay, yeah. That sounds, that sounds more right. Okay, so we, this is the first time we have been actively inconveniencing someone, and they sat down and said, you are actively inconveniencing me. Excellent. If you do not want to be inconvenienced as I don't, when you're sending out your newsletter, don't do it with some bells and whistles, gazillion kajingles uh, newsletter service. Do a tiny letter. It's made by MailChimp, who know newsletters better than anyone. And it's a simple way to start something up. They make you a little sign-up form. People come on, they sign up, they get your newsletter. It's easy. It's done. Thanks to Tiny Letter. Thanks again to lynda.com. Here's Max and Jack Schaefer. Hold on. I'm just going to go uh, register gajingles.com. <laughs> How many? Uh, a good jingle. Hello, Jack Schaefer. Hello to you, Max Olinsky. Thanks for uh, taking the time. I'd rather not be taking the time. I'd rather be at work. Yeah, you don't seem very eager to be doing this. I, Even though know, I came to you, we, I, I am in the political office. Um, you know, what I, what I th- feel is though you should never turn down any assignment, only postpone it. <laughs> okay. And I couldn't postpone this uh, really because you're coming down to Washington for a limited time. So I was on the train. Um, I'll, I will, uh, I'll take the bullet for you. Let's, well, let's go. Okay. All right. The thing is, these conversations are usually like casual. We start way at the beginning. No, no casual. But you don't, you don't no have the casual, time for this. No casual. We're on deadline. I'm, I'm not I'm on fu- deadline. I'm, I got all the time in the world. I'm fully caffeinated. How about you? <laughs> I got nothing. Here we go. I'm going to try and start at the beginning, and you can move me forward rapidly. Okay. When did you start writing about the press? I wrote a book review about the uh, Raymond Sokolow uh, biography of A.J. Liebling in like 1980. Um, so that was the first time I'd, I'd really thought about the press. Liebling, of course, was the longtime press critic uh, for the New Yorker. Hero uh, of yours. A hero of mine, yeah, uh, from the late 40s until the early 60s when he died. But I didn't really start uh, being a press critic or, or engaging in, in press criticism uh, until I became the editor of Washington City Paper, the alt-weekly in D.C. Uh, I became the editor in 1985, and I tried to get somebody to do press criticism, but nobody wanted to do it because they were worried about their next job. And, and seeing how the, the object of most of the criticism was going to be the Washington Post, people didn't want to be a press critic and then go over and, and get shot down for the job because they defended uh, an assistant managing editor with their co- their critique of, of the transportation story that ran in Metro. So I started doing it. And I sort of did it on the side. Um, you weren't worried about your next job. Well, I didn't think I was going to get a next job. I thought that <laughs> I thought I, the Peter Principle had re- already brought me to my level of incompetence, and I really wasn't going to go any further. In 1985, and I would say even in 2015, the idea of w- working at the Washington Post was not something that really appealed to me. There was uh, a kind of spirit and freedom um, in the alt weeklies then, and still, still is there, and much of that kind of freedom is is replicated on the web and and so i didn't really want to go to the post so that was no impediment Uh, i just didn't have the time so i started writing the columns basically after i would close features the editing of features and and um try to write it in the wee hours and and sneak it into the paper and was was the goal to hold them accountable or pick fights 
Uh, is there a difference? <laughs> I don't, um, I don't know. Is in, that a spectrum? I, in, my, in my first grade uh, report card, and this is a true story, this is not a Brian Williams story, um, my my uh, teacher in my first report card said, Jack is a, is a very good student. He loves reading. He loves arithmetic. But Jack has a tendency to start fights in the playground and bring them back into the classroom. <laughs> and I only uh, 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 saw this uh, report card a few years ago, and I think that's the sort of my, that's been my sort of career style. Start that sounds a fight, about right. Start a fight, bring it back into the classroom. There's a whole range of reasons to um, – write press criticism part of it is to educate the reader um, about the kind of um, journalism that they're reading given another perspective and you know daily newspapers don't have to make any excuses for having a dance critic several music critic uh, uh, music critics art critics um, uh, book critics that criticism is a, a valuable tool and and can be the launching point for great journalism is long acknowledged uh, it's just that daily newspapers didn't ever really do much of this because they didn't want to examine themselves so overtly or examine other publications so overtly lest they be examined. <laughs> right. I wouldn't say that that the that my intention was reformist that that I intended to make any newspaper better. I just wanted to consider the these newspapers on their own terms and and tell readers, you know, when they're being sold a bill of goods and on, on occasion. Uh, alerting readers to really valuable um, uh, stories, uh, journalist work that they might not have been exposed to. Do you praise things too? I praise things. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Was was the goal? I mean, who were those readers? Were, were like, I feel like uh, that is a, a central question of press criticism. Is like, are you are you writing for other journalists or not? Well, you you sort of feel like you're writing for other journalists, but you find civilians are interested too. People who are critical of their newspaper or want to know more about newspapering. So I I wouldn't say that I try to write inside baseball. I I've always um, tried to write for the general reader. I tend not to write about personnel and morale issues because newspapers you can always write a morale story about a newspaper because there's always somebody who's depressed about something. So my you know the the concentration has always been on um, uh, reading the text, um, re-reporting the competition's uh, story, or the the you know, if, if not competition, the other publication's story, uh, giving a reader um, uh, a thumbs up or a thumbs down, and most of all, making re- readers critical, um, making them not passive recipients of their of their news, and you find that there are a lot of people who la- hate their Washington Post or hate their New York Times as much as they love it. You know, they want to beat it. They want to defame it. They are. They want to drag it uh, around and beat it with a stick, and that's a long tradition in 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 journalism of hating and loving your newspaper at the same time. When you started doing that stuff at the city paper, did you make mistakes? Was it just something you innately knew how to um, do? I never have made a mistake in my entire <laughs> repertorial career. Um, no, I was I was fairly rigorous. I had editors sit on me. I would hand my copy out to the staffers and say, what am I, am I going too far here? Is that right? And was anyone else at the time taking it to the post? Like was that the Washingtonian, which uh, a slick uh, city monthly, it came out monthly and it would, it would criticize the, the, uh, the paper, but not the way an alt weekly can week after week after week. And I was just talking to a friend about this, the working on an alt weekly, almost everything that you're doing in the alt weekly is an act of press criticism. You're saying the Post or the the Big Daily doesn't know shit about 
rock music. It doesn't know anything about city politics. Um, every one of your stories is designed, or at least under my editorship, I wanted it to be a rebuke to the Washington Post. The Post is not got this right. If the Washington Post went out and did a great story about the metro subway system, we would let that dog lie. We wouldn't. But it, but it, but if they screwed up a story or we thought they were undercovering some issue, I almost felt as though an assignment was a shot across the bow, bow of the of the Washington Post, which had, you know, two hundred times the staffing and and budget uh, that we did. I'm, I told myself I was going to avoid like uh, making this like a, a eulogy for all weeklies. Yeah. So I don't want to ask you a lot of sad yeah. all weekly questions, but I have some like happy days alt-weekly questions which is the other thing that was happening in mid 80s early 90s at the city paper was you had this sort of incredible crop of young reporters many of whom have been on the podcast come through but that's true of every alt-weekly you know and the and city paper is in like a slightly you don't think so no no if you if you want to poke around um practically every alt-weekly has tossed out out of its orbit and into the mainstream orbit, real stars. No editor at an alt-weekly is being honest when he says he discovers these people. These people discover themselves and they throw themselves upon you. They force <laughs> you to hire them. Tell me a bit more about that. That was my question. Was well, like, what were you looking for in those, in those folks? You make mistakes. There are people that I should have hired. Um, there are people that I shouldn't have hired. It's just like shopping uh, shopping or ordering in a restaurant. You think, oh, this has got to be a great dish. turns out to be an awful dish. You, you buy a hot dog you know, off a, off a vending cart, and it turns out to be fantastic. Um, I was looking for people primarily who wanted to embrace conflict. Uh, conflict is the journalist's very best friend. Um, if it's a pleasant day, if um, the buses are running on time, if the politicians are clean— it's very hard to make engaging journalism about that. I, I, I welcome other uh, editors to write a, a beaming story about the efficiency of, of good government in their in their local jurisdiction. But what I wanted to find out, find out what was broken, what stinks, what hurts, um, and basically make make readers uncomfortable, make institutions bring institutions under scrutiny, interesting scrutiny. You know, my, my the batting average was not great, but that's what I would tell somebody when, when I was hiring them. I want you to put your finger between the hammer and the anvil and come back and tell the reader how it feels. And so that was sort of a, a limiter. You know, some people want to come in and write sort of soft essays or soft features. Um, and there's a place for that in journalism. They're just I just didn't want it in, in the pages of my paper. I wanted I wanted to start fights, and if I couldn't start fights, I wanted to be the referee that was, you know, scoring the card. So that guided, you know, who I hired. Do you think that that's still the case? Like for young people trying to get into journalism, is the best way to go about it to look for conflict? That that starts to that starts to uh, enter the realm of advice, and I don't give advice <laughs> because because when you give advice, you give the person an opening to come back and say, "Well, I did exactly what you told me to do, and I still failed." Um, my advice or my views on journalism are not binding on the entire universe. So if somebody comes in and asks me, you know, the most general advice I'll give is, "Well, if you want to break in." Find some area that is undercovered and that you do, can develop an expertise on, and that's one way to get noticed. You know, other advice, you know, never stop reading. Uh, but that's not even good advice. I'll give you an example. There was a young, talented journalist by the name of David Mills. Um, he graduated from the University of Maryland. As his senior project, he put together his own tabloid. So he designed it, wrote it, 
produced it, and it was sort of his calling card. He got an internship at the Wall Street Journal. He ends up working at the Washington Times, uh, which is the second paper in Washington uh, uh, controlled by uh, followers of uh, convicted felon Reverend Sun Young Moon's church, uh, Unification Church. And he wrote great features, and he wrote, he had a great eye and a great voice. And uh, he wanted to come to work for me. And I was just about ready to hire him. And I said, David, what do you read? And he says, oh, man, he says, I don't read. At the end of the day, I just want to come home and crack open a bud and, and kick back and, and listen to some jams. And I thought, God, I, you know, I can't afford to have somebody on my staff who's not interested in literature, not interested in, in uh, literary nonfiction, doesn't read the newspapers back to front. And so I didn't hire him. Washington Post hired him instead. He did very well at the Washington Post. Then he hooked up with his University of Maryland classmate, David Simon, <laughs> and started writing scripts for Homicide. Um, I think he has some some of the script credits on um, The Wire. Uh, goes to Hollywood, starts his own series as executive producer of a, a, a gangster um, series that he created that uh, lasted half a season. And then at a very young, you know, 50 or young... 48, 49, uh, died about some sort of heart attack. But there was a guy that I made a mistake on. I had these binding rules. You must be a reader. You must be interested in literature. And it turns out I was full of it. And, and it caused me to, to, to question my whole methodology. But you have, to have, you have to have some base, some sort of bedrock upon which you develop your editorial philosophy. I think that's probably, you know, maybe David was the one exception of the non-reader who could <laughs> who could write about confrontation and and conflict, um, and write with a with a clear literary voice, um, who had no interest in reading. It's just it's just very rare in my experience. Um, um, there's a famous journalist uh, of the 30s who said how to become a writer was uh, read a lot, uh, imitate uh, these writers, and then forget that you're imitating them. <laughs> and keep and keep on going. And um, we did. We miss David Mills. I, I hope people uh, uh, remember him and cherish him because he was a he was a he was a great guy and a, um, a talented writer. And I made a huge mistake. <laughs> well, okay. I won't force you to like give advice, but I, I'm interested in as someone who is making those hires then and then has been keeping an eye on this, a very close eye on this for 30 years. Do you think that? what leads to success for a young journalist today is different than it was when you were staffing up the yeah, city paper? Yeah, I, I'm going to recuse myself from these, <laughs> from these sort of wooly questions. Council is leading the witness, trying to get him to answer the question that he wants the way he wants it. I'm just you know, interested I mean, in your sometimes, sometimes it's, it's a gut. Sometimes it's... Um, uh, you know, you make mistakes. I hired people that I shouldn't have hired, and and then what you try to do is either reform them, reform yourself, or rectify the error and and uh, tell them, you know, to leave. And and I mean, there's there are writers who came to me. I'll give you a great example. Um, I hired fresh out of college, Kara Swisher, and Kara Swisher I hired basically because she's a dynamo. She's unstoppable, just a force of nature. But it wasn't the right time for her. She didn't embrace stories about conflict. Her writing wasn't particularly good. Her editing wasn't particularly good. And we agreed to part after, I think it was six or eight months. Um, but she got right back into the game. And to give you the short form of her career, she ends up working for John McLaughlin's uh, TV show, 
Uh, she's an intern at the Washington Post. She does something almost nobody ever does at the Washington Post. She converts the internship directly into a staff position. She comes becomes a great business writer. She ends up writing a book about um, about AOL and vaults from there to the Wall Street Journal. Ends up uh, covering the tech beat for the Wall Street Journal, and you know the rest of the story. She becomes uh, partners with Walt Mossberg in what was All Things Digital, and now they, which they've spun off uh, to, or not spun off, but left to create their own uh, organization, Recode. And you know, maybe I should have given Kara another <laughs> two months, and that I would have been able to harness this dynamo. So you make mistakes all the time. You think somebody doesn't have it. Yeah, you you know you sent them back to the miners, or you you know you gave them the the, the uh, put them on waivers, and then they go succeed someplace else. Um, so editors shouldn't be too arrogant. Um, I certainly was, but you have to make decisions. That was you, almost advice. That it was almost advice. It was bordering yeah, on not advice. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. So Red City Paper, you are uh, doing this press criticism. You are hiring uh, and striking out on Dynamo's. Your time there ends, and I'm interested in how what you end up pursuing is not shaping a publication, but becoming a press critic. How, how, did, how did that well, happen? Well, the whole time, I, prob- I was probably writing a column at least three out of the four weeks of the month. I edited City Paper for 10 years, and after I think all weekly editors should sort of butt out of a paper after 10 years because you find people want to do stories that you did early in an earlier incarnation. You go, no, 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 we've done the definitive story on. Do you think that's true just uh, of just all weeklies? More all weeklies than dailies because dailies, dailies can't control the the news agenda the way that an alt weekly can. Yeah. They 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 have to be more responsive day to day um, with with. But what about uh, magazines? Probably magazines too, unless unless they're paying you too much to leave. Um, and I decided to leave just because I, I thought, well, I probably, you know, this is 500 issues. I probably covered all the things I'm really, really interested in. And I thought I thought I wanted to break out and try, try to start all over again. Um, so I took a job with New Times, which had just bought the SF Weekly in San Francisco. And I did that for about a year and a quarter, had some great, excellent journalists, had a, bigger, had a better um, editorial budget. And I did some press criticism there. It wasn't the same because San Francisco isn't quite the media center that Washington is. And then Kinsley called in the spring of 96 and said, why don't you come join me at Slate? And I thought, yeah, this is this is going to web journalism is going to be a new happening thing. It'd be fun to be in on the ground floor. And I basically was Mike's um, uh, spear chucker for four or so years being his deputy, editing behind him, helping him to manage the staff. Didn't do a lot of criticism. I wrote fairly frequently, but you know, it wasn't until Jake Weisberg replaced uh, Mike that I sort of went back into the vineyards of uh, press criticism. I went back and read some of those early slate columns, mm-hmm. like sort of about the like dawn of web journalism. Mm-hmm. And there's uh, things in there that are so prescient. Like there, there's one long paragraph about how like you better like sit down and get ready for a future where, like, uh, all of this is on your phone. It was a thing that you really? wrote. It. You wrote that in, like, 1997. Wow. Which struck wow. me as, like, pretty genius. Wow. Yeah. The, the, it's amazing what you find when you go back and you look at your old clips. Yesterday, I wrote what I thought was a brilliant lead uh, for my Brian Williams piece. And then as I was about ready to send it to my editor, I said, 
have I written that before? <laughs> so I put a few search terms in and I found that I'd written exactly the same lead only with different characters or different uh, principles in uh, 2006 or 2007. So I described the lead and hastily write one. I send it off to my editor and he comes over very gingerly. He says, great, great column. Really like it. But the lead isn't quite right. I said, there's a reason. I wrote it in 30 seconds. You know, what do you suggest will be a better lead? So he wrote me a better lead. Uh, do you feel like um, you need to be more careful with that kind of thing because people have their knives out for you? Like, like mm. since you're going after other people all the time, do you think people go after you? I invite their knives. Um, you know, the press critic shouldn't live in a, uh, I guess we're going to miss met- mix metaphors here, but he shouldn't live in a glass house. Uh, of course you want criticism. It's one of the reasons that, you know, from the time I was able, I've added lots of links to my pieces. So if I make an assertion of fact, the reader doesn't have to agree with where I take my argument, but they can see that, you know, that, that I'm not, I'm not pulling uh, facts and numbers and, and chronologies and histories out of my ass. Um, but yeah, the, you know, that's why I always put my email address and respond to even the nasty letters that I get. Because uh, you you want to be engaged with the, your readers, and you know if a press critic can't write, uh, stand down when he's committed a, a mistake, you know what 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 hope is there for the world, Max? What hope? There was a time where you were one of ve- very very few people thinking and writing publicly about this stuff. Now there are many many people who have the ability and choose to write publicly about this stuff. How has that affected your job? You know, I, it, it's it's probably like any other journalist. If you think somebody has done your story or done it 50% right, um, you say, ah, shit, I should have gotten to that. Like the Williams story. I, I've, I've been blessed um, both at Politico and at Reuters with great editors where I'll say, you know, that's, you know, we're 12 hours into this, um, this Brian Williams thing. I didn't say this, but hypothetically, I could have said, we're 12 hours into this. Everybody's covered it. Everybody's taken their shots at Brian Williams. You know, there's probably nothing left for me to say. And I've got great editors in Garrett Craft here at um, Politico and Jim Ledbetter at Reuters who'd say, yeah, but you'll do it better. And so I wouldn't say that ideas are any harder to come by. I don't want to come off sounding arrogant about this, but I don't think it's really changed much for me. You know, I, I welcome it. You know, I've learned a lot from a lot of other uh, writers I think it's completely healthy. I don't think it's navel-gazing. Um, Bill Keller famously referred to all the press critics and press reporters who were watching the New York Times as oxpeckers. And an oxpecker is a is a African bird that lands on the back of, I forget whether it's a water buffalo or a rhinoceros, and digs the like ticks out of the skin of the host animal. Um, and of course, you know, Keller, by that um, analogy, was making him, you know, himself and the times ought to be the dominant master species. I find, you know, that, that you know, look at the sports section. It's filled with lots of advo- lots of voices and, a, and a, lot, a lot of controversy and a lot of different approaches. And a lot of hot takes. A lot of hot takes. You know, it's funny that the hot take has become a disparaging term. It's Didn't they all do the hot take takedown? Yeah, I think it is. Uh, and takedown. it was a hot take. <laughs> Itself, it was a hot take. Uh, better that we have hot takes and cold takes. Yeah, lukewarm uh, takes. You go back and you look at the history of journalism, you know, when places like Washington had five, six, seven daily newspapers and New York had, I think at the turn of the century, I, I, I was just uh, pawing some books at um, a used bookstore in New York. They had 61, 60 or 61 foreign language newspapers, not all dailies, of course, 
there were a lot of hot takes on a lot of arguments and different views. And, and I think that's great. I really am enjoying the web era because I don't think journalists are a species or a craft or a career apart from, from what we in the trade like to call civilians. You know, they're, they're people who walked off the street for me uh, at City Paper, never written a story before, and written great features or great, you know, news stories. I think the big difference is that we do it every day. It's sort of like, you know, uh, somebody can cook a great meal. Uh, that doesn't mean all chefs are going to go out of business. Uh, so I've never been intimidated by or worried or fretted or felt any sort of protectionist sensibility about the web voices joining the din. I think that was actually like a, another shitty leading question, probably. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, which was that's what you do. That's my game. That's my whole thing. You and I have talked before about uh, how the one rule you have for your columns is to be original. You were the first person I got to say. You're the first person who's just actively checking your email while I'm talking to you. Well. <laughs> I'm working. I'm on salary right now. You know, if my boss is saying, who's the funny looking man that you're, you, you, you've taken away one of the top editor's offices and you're talking to a funny ma- little man in there. Um, so I have to check. Yeah, I have to check my mail. Not that little um, man. Not that little. You used to be a little. I, I, I remember. Little. I remember when you were, I think I met you when you were still in college, right? Uh, just out. Just out? Yeah. Um, you, uh, you, told me that, you told me that Anvil line. Did I? Yeah. It's, it's one. Cause I was writing some well. fluffy ass features. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you were, um, uh, look at your finger now. It's all got callus and scar tissue on yeah. it from put, putting it in there. You have told me before that you don't want to put anything up that doesn't feel original. Um, we are, uh, living in a, in a moment where that's not everyone's rule. Mm-hmm. That's not a, a maxim that everyone lives by. Well, th- that's, that's the aim. That's the design. Somebody can look at my column that went up last night and say, well, lots of people wrote about Brian Williams. There's nothing particularly original here. And that's that's their right. You know, Harold Bloom, the lit crit guy at, at Yale, talks about the anxiety of influence. I become a little bit anxious if I'm treading the path that somebody else treaded too closely. Um, I need a, a more breathing room. You know, as, as a writer, it's a very selfish motive. If you are writing original copy... Uh, it's probably easier to hook somebody. Um, but if you're right, if I were to go back to my desk right now and write about the foibles of Fox News Channel, you know, everybody, even the people who are sympathetic to the story out there, their eyes are just glaze, <laughs> right. glaze over because they've seen it so many times. But if I go and find something that's a little bit more original, it energizes me. There's a greater sense of discovery. It's a selfish thing. And readers are grateful. Readers are grateful always to find, you know, an, an unexpected species of bird presented to them. Hey, I didn't even know that the, that the um, uh, prothonotary warbler um, flew in these parts. That's great. Um, <laughs> what, like, what else goes into your decision making around what to write? The deadline. <laughs> you know, seriously. How do you know you've got a column idea? Like, how, how do you, how does if that you process can, if, you, if you can write a lead. If you got can write a lead and you have the next couple of ideas set up, then God rewards you. The muse snaps to attention. the The muse requires a thesis and and some stirring language and some good reporting. And it's rare that now that I'll start a column and say, "Nah, that's not a column." I mean, the web makes so remarkably easy 
uh, compared to the back in the the newsprint days before before the web to research a story back in let me tell you son about <laughs> back in the early 90s Walter Brennan and I would sit around at my apartment near DuPont Circle and my idea of the World Wide Web was three five-foot stacks of newspapers the Washington Post the Washington Times and the New York Times and I would remember a story that had appeared several months before and then I would dig down and find it because we didn't have Nexus we couldn't afford Nexus and there was no World Wide Web in its pipes um, this is the podcast I was hoping for. Is it? Is yeah. it the, the Walter Brennan? Yeah. Um, it's gotten a lot easier because if you have have a couple of ideas, you can go out and test it and gather material. It both Newsweek are both at um, Politico and um, uh, and Reuters and Slate. Uh, all three of these places had great colleagues. I could go out and say, "Hey, give me another example. I need another example yeah. of a journalist who screwed up when speaking extemporaneously." Do you always know where you're going to land? Not always. Sometimes you know you've you've got the kicker. Uh, sometimes, you know, it's, it's like solving a, um, a mathematical equation. You have a general sense of how you're going to get there, but you don't know exactly how, how do you navigate, uh, writing about your friends? You, you know, a lot of people in this world. Yeah. The, the funny thing is that, um, I, I probably only lost a couple of friends or, or acquaintances by writing critically about them. There's one guy who now for 21 years. Whenever he sees me, social occasion or walking down the street, uh, he says, fuck you, Schaefer. <laughs> fuck you. Just fuck you, Schaefer. Um, a couple of years ago, he called me up. He was writing a story and he wanted my help on it. And I said, aren't you going to say fuck you, Schaefer? And he said, yeah, fuck you, Schaefer. But he meant it. Um, and, I, I, <laughs> and then you helped him. I, I gave him a phone number. That's what he was looking for. There are people who have written negatively about. And then when they shake my hand, meeting me the first time, they they realize who it is and they drop my hand. But some of those people later become colleagues or not hostile acquaintances. Journalists, it's true. It's the, one of the truisms that's been passed around about journalists. It's not that they have thin skin, it's that they have no skin and they're very easily offended. But the number of people who've um, sworn oaths of vengeance against me that I'm aware of are, are relatively few. Sure. But, Maybe that's because you're good at navigating writing about people you know. Or you could say, you could look at my stuff, and I ah, pussyfoot, and he doesn't. He do you, doesn't do you think you pussyfoot on your friends? On my friends? Mm, generally not. Are there people, are there not. like, uh, are there no people fly in zones. The, Yeah, are there no like people zones. in the like, uh, inner circle? That I wouldn't attack because they wrote something. You bad. said the word attack, not me. I'm just saying, yeah. write about critically. I, I wouldn't say that there's anybody who, um, I've given an automatic buy to. Do you think your critics would say that too? I don't know. Who are my critics? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Straw man. <laughs> I'm just trying to ask harder questions. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you're, you're, uh, the questions are getting harder and harder to answer. Can you ever remember a time where you pulled a punch? <sighs> Insert in, in the transcript here. 15 second <laughs> delay while Jack tries to figure out what it, what constitutes uh, pulling a punch. I don't think I'm especially vituperative and cruel to anybody. Best word think, so far on the podcast. I think, I, I think we're great again, right? Yeah. Five stars for the one word. Yeah, vituperative. Um, you know, generally I'm not writing about the individual unless the individual's behavior is in question. I'm writing about their journalism. 
you know, I can read a piece of yours and think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a vile piece of shit. And I can write, you know, rather critically and, 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 and violently and, and in an assaultive manner, but I'm not necessarily saying you're a bad human that you should be put out with the sewage. So my stuff is usually about the piece, not about the, about the journalist. You know, I kind of rarely write about journalist behavior, more about trying to think about the piece because the writing about the person becomes sort of subjective. Whereas everybody's going to have a different, have had a different encounter with journalist Y um, and have different opinions about him. But if you're just talking about the piece, everybody can look at the piece and consider it on its own merits and then dismiss or embrace your criticism. Right. But you're sort of like sticking within the text. Yeah, sticking within the text. Yeah. If you are going to uh, criticize a piece of text, do you let people know beforehand? Uh, it depends if I've got questions, but I think that the piece should stand for itself. The the uh, dance critic, the book critic, doesn't call up the book author and say, "On page two hundred and fourteen, I'm really not sure you know what you're talking about when you say that." Mexico conquered America in 1890. Can, can we talk about that? You are judging the, you're not judging the person, you're judging the work at hand. But there are times that I'll pick up the phone and, and four or three years ago, I was the first to write about the trial of, um, of Stephen Glass. Uh, Stephen Glass had appealed all the way to the Supreme Court to be uh, admitted to the bar, um, something he had been de- denied in New York State. And um, I was writing almost exclusively from the the lower court uh, arguments and decisions which I had uh, completely, and um, I called both Glass and his his father for comment because their behaviors were discussed in this, and neither one of them returned the call. So I was writing about them, the person, what they did, what they said, wanted to assess the truth value um, because they had competing views of or at least Glass had a, a very critical view of the way he'd been brought up. But it's it's mostly about the product. You know, the, the press, it's the press critic. I'm not a, I'm not the freelance um, a person critic. And that hasn't, I mean, hold on. I'm going to ask a better question. Yeah. Eh, I, that's just the yeah. same shit I keep asking yeah. you. I'm going to ask a whole new question. I've intimidated you, haven't I? A little bit, but yeah. you've intimidated me for a long time. Okay. This is nothing new. Speaking of, I was super intimidated the first time I met you because you were, like I was, I don't know, 22 or 23. And uh, you were Jack Schaefer of Slate. Jack Schaefer of Slate, which is, uh, I feel like, uh, a way that many, 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 many people came to know you was through Slate and through your work on Slate. And I am interested in the moment that you found out that you were leaving. What was that like? I, it was fine. Um, I, was, I was sitting in my office. I got an email from the boss, Jacob Weisberg, and, and he said he was coming down from New York today. You're going to be around? I said, yeah, sure, I'm going to be around. And then I emailed him back. I says, what's this about? He says, oh, just checking in. We haven't talked in a while. And then uh, later that afternoon when he arrived, I was called into an office with where he and uh, the ed- then editor, David Plotz, uh, were sitting. And um, they told me I was leaving, that they, I was being laid off. And they offered me a very nice severance and a, you know, a deal to write a column uh, as a freelancer um, if I wanted to. But, you know, the minute that your boss says that you haven't seen for a while wants to come and see you, it's sort of like your girlfriend, your spouse coming home and before they embrace and kiss you to say, you know, 
hello for the evening. So I've got to jump in the shower. You know, you know that something's up. You know that there's some stink uh, that's happened. Uh, there's no elegant way to sack somebody. There's no elegant way to break up. They gave me a fine severance, and um, and I bore them no no uh, immediate ill, and or long long term ill. And I still have lots of friends at Slate. Were you surprised? No one should be surprised, because you know deep down inside the the imposter syndrome, you think like you have no right to be where you are. Every now and then, somebody says, "Yeah, that's right. You don't have a right to be here." Um, Actually, in, get the in, fuck out. At, at Slate, they they said, "Oh, we're letting you go because." We've got to um, cut our budget and constrict our budget, and there have been bad times. We're just coming out of the publishing uh, recession. Uh, you're lucky every day you have a job. You did this column, two-part column at Slate, that was just a collection of people's, like, fuck you letters when yeah, they left or yeah, got fired. Yeah. Like, it's a thing that you think about and enjoy. Oh, totally. And, you know, there was this amazing outpouring on Twitter, especially the day that you lost your job and people were kind of dumbfounded. I was one of them. It just seemed like crazy. You were Jack Schaefer of Slate. Mm -hmm. You can't be Jack Schaefer not of Slate. Mm -hmm. And you were so gracious about it as you just were. I've been on the other side of the equation. I've had to let people go. Sometimes it's personal. Sometimes it's financial. Uh, There are a lot of reasons. And, you know, I've just never liked the whiner who, when he lost his job, said, oh, this place is going to go downhill now, or then discovers the day that they get they get sacked, oh, this place sucks, and declares war on it. Mike Kinsley, who I used to work for, used to say that in our business there are mercenaries and slaves. We are lucky enough to be mercenaries. If you're a mercenary, the, the warlord who's hired you has the right to get rid of you, and you have a right to leave whenever you want. A slave has to stay. Yeah, it was the first time I'd ever gotten laid off or fired. And um, the response was genuine. Uh, genuine. I'd, I'd been treated, I'd, I'd like to say that I'd been treated like a prince. Um, later I went to Reuters and they treated me like a king. Um, <laughs> but I had very good, um, uh, a very good run there. And that's what I cared, cared about the most. I cared about the continuity of the relationship with the people I'd worked with. You know, it took a it took a scuffing. Every all the reporters called me. Oh, you must be really mad at Slate now because they're looking for the conflict too. And I said, No, man, it's all Jesus here. Jesus and lambs and <laughs> and sweet whiskey. Um, that was genuine. I'm glad to hear that. I mean, a, a slightly more cynical read of that is it also helps you get the next job. Well, somebody tweeted that when I just got sacked or, or let go from Reuters. They said. Uh, Jack Schaefer gets laid off, praises bosses. He'll have no trouble getting another job. Uh, and maybe there is a formula like that, that you, when you get fired, you should um, fling extravagant praise. But if people really think it through, in many cases, I'm not going to say all, your layoff is not about you. It's about, I mean, Reuters is a, a vital, news-breaking, powerful, professional, admirable news institution that they decide that they don't want a full-time press critic anymore it's not necessarily a jab at me or something that I should take umbrage about. I think that's a uh, a unique way to think about a job that it's not yours, it's somebody else's. Well, that's what I've said both times I got sacked. You know, it's it, the job belongs to the boss or the guy who's making the budget, as it did when I was the editor of SF Weekly and, and City Paper. Um, and when they decide that the job doesn't, convey to you anymore and they want it to go to somebody else or they just want to vaporize it that should be their prerogative 
I want to ask you a little bit about uh, this moment that we're in, and uh, there's an opportunity to heap further extravagant praise. What media organizations do you think uh, are doing really well right now? It's very subjective, and I'd want to do more detailed thinking about that. It's very hard to compare news organizations except for taking a kind of temperature that, that can be replicated or be authenticated by other people. Back in the 90s, uh, late 90s, I wrote a piece about how the Washington Post and the New York Times had sort of switched personalities. That it used to be, kind of in the Ben Bradley era, the Washington Post was West Coast offense. And if our, we don't have any football fans listening to the podcast, the West Coast offense, big on the long ball, throwing, throwing deep and very aggressive offensive playmaking and lots of interceptions and and mistakes but kind of wild and open and the new york times was sort of the dull stodgy three yards of clouded dust right down to its culture um there's always been a lot of transplants a lot of washington post people jumped to the new york times uh but still the the two papers had their separate personalities and i observed that um, the New York Times by the late 90s was a little bit more wild and I don't want to say reckless, but a little bit more taking some guns, gunslinging and and paying for those the gunslinging like their Wen Ho Lee uh, story, which turned out to be not an exemplar of, 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 of journalism. And the post became a little bit more boring and plotting under Len Downey. Um, I have great respect for Len Downey. I think he might be the best editor of the 90s um, because. He never, ever, you know, there, there are no massive screw-ups on his watch. He's very, very disciplined. And the paper just, but the paper wasn't exciting. Meanwhile, the Post Times is much more exciting, but maybe, maybe too much so. Um, so, you know, in that case, I wouldn't say, oh, the Post is doing a good job and the New York Times is doing bad or vice versa. The, I was trying to make a qualitative observation. Uh, just the other day I tweeted, for years, I picked up the New York Times as my first paper, and gosh, in the last year or so, for some reason, I go to the Post first. I think it's because Marty Baron became editor. Marty Baron is a great old-time news editor. He's probably a combination of three yards on a cloud of dust and West Coast offense throwing it, throwing it long. Uh, so th- there's something about the vitality of the Washington Post now, which doesn't have the resources and doesn't have all the all the spears. And it's just a very exciting and vital newspaper. It's interesting to me that in your uh, very elegant dodge to that question, that you gravitated immediately toward the Times and the Post. Like, I was, I, in my head, I was thinking, which of these like young web upstarts are you interested by? And it seems like uh, you still gravitated towards those th- towards those two. Do you feel like that's still where the juice is? Insert fifteen second pause while I think, because we know what happened to Brian Williams when he didn't think. Um, you can tell your war story. Okay, after well, this. I was in this Chinook. Okay, you were piloting the Chinook ahead of me, and Man, what a crazy uh, you day. went, you burst into flames, and you died a horrible, horrible. <laughs> Violet death. <laughs> that, um, that was my brother. I, I don't think that there's any website that I know of whose editor or top editors or top writers would say, we kick the Washington Post and the New York Times ass day in and day out. You know, we dominate them. We smother them. They don't have the talent. They don't have the wide ranging correspondence. You know, the, the, they suck and we're brilliant. I don't think you'd hear that from from Ezra Klein at Vox and you wouldn't hear it from Nick Denton at Gawker and you wouldn't hear it from Ben Smith at, at uh, BuzzFeed or uh, Julia Turner at Slate. 
And those would be the usual suspects that we're rounding up saying, oh, where's the brilliant journalism being done today? That's sure. not to disparage any of those places, but still. The New York Times has I don't think they, I don't has think an they'd editorial budget north of $100 million. Right. You give any one of those organizations $100 million, they're going to be a lot better, too. Well, someone just gave BuzzFeed 50 bucks. Yeah, but, but that's that's funding. That's not editorial budget. That's like to make the whole thing grow. I know. I think you're totally right. I don't think any of them would say that they're uh, wiping the floor with either of those papers. I do think that they would they would say pretty quickly uh, that they aspire to. Like that's the ambition of the place is to is to overtake those. Do you think they have a chance? Do you think we got a shot? Well, look at the look at Gawker. Um, Gawker is probably even more than BuzzFeed or Huffington Post. Uh, staked out all the verticals that you traditionally see in a daily newspaper except for Metro. So they have entertainment, they've got sports coverage. The Gawker doesn't have a business vertical, do they? No. So you, see, it's just hard to they've do. They've got like a Silicon Valley thing. It's hard to do the one-on-one comparison and, and contrast because... They will when they merge with Business Insider. <laughs> if that happens, that would be interesting. This is not meant to be any sort of disparagement of, of these great growing websites. And call me a fuddy-duddy, but there's still there's there's still a lot of gas left in the uh, the newspaper tank. The Wall, the Wall Street Journal, which I've been remiss in not discussing, they've done great stuff on cybersecurity. They've broken a lot of uh, a lot of fascinating stories. Had a fascinating story this week about how the Obama administration sort of didn't railroad so much as um, take over the whole net neutrality debate and 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 pull the FCC their way. Um, sophisticated scoop reporting. It's hard to even place them in the same league, but that's you know that's uh, that's fine. There's there's plenty of room in the in the pasture for all God's creatures. <laughs> I got a one uh, gas in the tank question. Then I really will let you go. Uh, we're sitting here at Politico. You have this column on Brian Williams that you need to go write, uh, but you are also going to be writing long form features here. Yep. That's exciting. That's very exciting. Got still got some gas in the tank. Well, it, it ought to be fun. Um, just need some good ideas. Got any? <laughs> Not that I'm giving you. Who's been Who's been giving it? Who's been getting an easy ride? What do you mean? And you know who who needs a long, oh long oh form who, who needs like a, a teardown? Not even a teardown. Just a a, um, a hard look, a hard jack shape. Hard look. look. I'll tell you afterwards. I'm not going to tell you. Okay. Now. You don't want to give my idea away to the to the masses, and then I would get scooped. Because they said, if it's good enough for Max to give to Jack, let's steal it. I just wouldn't want you to put out a story and then everyone know that I gave you the idea. It would be like advice. Yeah. I, I'd if, be if it blew up, I said, what do you expect? It was yeah, Max's yeah, fucking Max's story. idea. What do you want to cover? What do you want to be doing? Any good story idea. Obviously, in media and politics is in my um, wheelhouse, but um, I wouldn't say no to anything. Are you going to be like hitting, hitting the ground or are you going to be working the phones? <laughs> Uh, that, hit, it, hitting, hitting the phones or <laughs> working the grounds. I wish yeah. like, you know, a lot of people that we have on the show who are doing this kind of work are like traveling all the time. Yeah. And uh, well, I feel like something you, to be traveling. I mean, the, the amount of reporting that I do for a column is not always apparent in it because I very rarely quote people. I'll, I'll check facts. I'll get anecdotes. Um, um, but I don't do a lot of quoting of people because it, it slows a piece down. Unless somebody turns a really good phrase like uh, W. Joseph Campbell did yesterday. You know, I put him in my kicker. I was interviewing him and asking him for some ideas, and he uncorked this really good good line. Um, so, you know, I've, I've worked the phones 
I work the phones on 90% of columns. They're not not all pure masturbation. <laughs> this is going to be shocking to anyone who's listening, but you once wrote an article about long form and uh, you emailed me some questions. You emailed, or you just started with one question. And yeah, I, I wrote about you. Yeah, and I, yeah. And I, wrote, uh, I wrote you back like a very straightforward, pretty bland answer. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> you wrote me back a one line email that said, uh, do better, be more loquacious next time. <laughs> Three paragraphs at least. <laughs> Yeah, you were holding out on me, man. <laughs> so that's how you treat quotes. Yeah. Um, I wait. I had a, a contextual question that I wanted to ask you, and I really will let you go. Um, one of the great things about your press writing is you're as well sort of versed in the history of both the press and press criticism uh, as anybody, and you tie all this stuff back all the time. And I wonder, like, in this moment, okay, so you've got the Post and the Times, and they're trying to figure out whether they're going to be able to run the West Coast mm-hmm. offense. Mm-hmm. You've got a established enough group of upstarts that there's a shorthand for who we're talking about. We don't even have to name names. Mm-hmm. Is there a moment in the history of the press that reminds you of what's going on now? Is there something well, that can be drawn on I'm, to just give some context? Yeah, I'm prone to um, historical parallels, even when they don't completely stand <laughs> up. Because it gives me a tool. Give me a loose one. Give me, gives me a tool to understanding. Right now, I'm reading a, a book uh, by an academic named Donald Wilson. He wrote in wrote this book in the eighteen uh, 1980s, and he talks about how yellow journalism of the 1890s in New York City and elsewhere that gives way to the whole progressive era of magazines like McClure's and and the muckraking studies of of Standard Oil and whatnot and, and mining abuses, labor abuses. Um, he makes a strong case that uh, all this was made possible by technology. Presses get faster. The telephone uh, network becomes uh, the tendrils of the of the telephone lines are now everywhere. So it makes rep- reporting on location all over the city, all over the state possible if you just want to pay, willing to pay for the phone call. And he makes a case for how this changed the nature of journalism. Journalism becomes a more professional enterprise in those days. Before that. That you were a reporter. Starting in the 1890s, you started becoming specialized. You were a financial reporter, a sports reporter, a society reporter, a city hall reporter. And I, I've been trying to link this up in my mind with a, some sort of analogous situation uh, in the 90s when, when the web gets uh, hopping, that journalism no longer belongs to the person who can afford a press or even can convince somebody to run their story. Anybody with a with a computer and a blogger account can be a journalist. I've always believed that a, all a journalist was is somebody acted, somebody who would perform an act of journalism. And I've been trying to think about how the fact that, that the barriers of entry that it, that were very high before and and now have been smashed down, how that's changed journalism. You know, the fact that stories had to be short and concise so that you could fit more of them in the newspaper. Well, there's really no upper limit on the length of a story because as you know, the adding another, another line or another page or another, you know, five megs of story are marginal. There's no, no real cost impediment. Um, so I'm trying to, in my mind, I'm trying to sort out a, a sort of parallel between the 1890s. I mean, you definitely see a kind of high entertainment, sensationalized, and I, when I say sensationalized, I mean that in a positive sense, populist, not quite revolutionary, but politically engaged kind of journalism happening in the 1890s and the early uh, part of the, of the uh, 20th century. I think that there are parallels uh, with 
web journalism, that more voices, new voices, crowdsourcing, if you will. I think that there's, there's, there's great energy and great vitality and excitement. I mean, without, without seeming to stroke the, um, my current, um, uh, temporary owners, uh, uh, employers rather, uh, at Politico, great excitement here. Um, I can't believe you waited until minute 63 to to do that. Shocking. Um, they've got, they've, they, they created a new, almost a new kind of journalism, a, a sort of, you know, the um, mini scoop. But even that's not original. Uh, if you go back to the foundation of the Associated Press and then later United Press, International Press, all the wire services were always competing within between editions to break news and advance the right. story. So, uh, but, but um, too much technological determinism uh, makes you a very boring writer. So I have to find a I have to find a good hook to, to find my way into well, it. Well, once you do, that sounds like a, maybe like a good long form piece. Can we shake on that? Yeah. All right, man. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor is Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our intern this week, Rachel Mabe. Thanks very much to Jack Schaefer for taking the time. And uh, thanks to Blake Hounchel for letting us use his office to record that at Politico. Uh, thanks also to our sponsor, lynda.com. Go to lynda.com slash longform. You'll get a free 10-day trial. Go invest in yourself. Uh, and if you're looking for something else to do this week, before we're back next week with a new episode, uh, go to iTunes.com slash longformpodcast. Go leave us a review. It's uh, actually very helpful. It is a way to support the show. Please do that, and we'll see you next week. Light the candle, put the lock upon the door. You have sent the maid home early like a thousand times before. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running. (laughs) But they choose to do it. In the new docuseries Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.